It's on with me. Hey, here we go. Well, none of you heard me tell you how great you look, Ben. That's awesome. <laughs> you look beautiful. Uh, you sound great, too. But if we go ahead and put, turn back to the book of James, like I was saying, we're going to be there for a few months, okay? I just want to warn you, James is not a quick trip. It may be a short book, but it's not a quick trip. The reality is, is that God poured a lot out of James through the Holy Spirit to write this book, and so don't think we're just going to jump through it real quickly. You know, I, I preached through the book of Exodus before, and I believe I've mentioned this. I preached through it for 40 weeks, and I had people like, how much longer are we going to be in Exodus? And I was like, well, they were there for 40 years, so 40 weeks isn't bad. <clears throat> so just a warning uh, that we will be in the book of James for a little while. And uh, I, I just, uh, this week, I want to be honest with you, uh, I've, I've shared with you, I'm, I'm that guy who gets the message done by like Tuesday, Wednesday is the latest. Friday, we had our Converge North Central uh, meeting, and I actually finished up Friday. And I want to explain why real quick before we dive into the Word together, because this is not a light word this week. Are you like a preacher where the last one's supposed to be light? They were easier. Let's just put it that way. They were easier to get into. Not because God's Word was challenging. It's just I felt like I was trying to to spit out on the paper what was coming through on a fire hydrant. Because every time I turned around, God would say, oh, oh, put this in there. I'm like, God, there's only so much ink in the printer. He's like, no, you got you to share this. You got to tell them this. And God kept using other people to put text into my life. And I was like, okay, God, I get it. This is very, very important. And so today, as we begin this, this journey through uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, understand, this is an important passage. Now, I don't think just important in general, but I think it's important for the time we live in and the day we're going through. This is such a crucial thing for us to understand today. That at God's table, all are welcome. All people are welcome at God's table. That's one of the things that's been really neat for us as we've been here. People keep inviting us to come to their homes, and it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing. It's a, we treasure it. We love getting to come to houses, but I just want to remind you, we're chubby people, so well, I am. Um, speak for myself, huh? That I'm a chubby person, and I like to eat, okay? And so I, you just keep inviting, okay? And I'll keep coming. You know, we have really been blessed by the invitations we've had to people's homes. And what, I, what is so great about that is that everybody that has invited us has, has made us feel more than, more than welcome, if that makes sense. And as God's people, we need to make all people, all people feel welcome to be a part of his family. I want to share a quick story for you or with you. Mahatma Gandhi. Some of you may know who that is. Some of you don't. Google it after service, younger ones. But Mahatma Gandhi was a famous Indian leader. He was a nonviolent Buddhist monk that believed that the way to, to go about things was to be kind and loving to all people. But when he was real young, he was considered becoming a Christian. He had read the Gospels and was thoroughly intrigued by them, and he loved this Jesus that he read about. He loved how Jesus loved 
all these amazing people. And he honestly believed that the Gospels were the solution for all the ills of India. The Gospel was how God could change India. And then he went to church. He went to church. A local congregation walked in the door, looked for a place to sit, and an usher took him and sat him with a group of people that uh, were his caste system. The lowly, the poor, and the unwanted. And Mahatma Gandhi is famous for this one statement. He says, Oh, Christians, I love your Jesus. But the Christians, I don't like. Because he said, if, if the church treated me the same way everybody else did, then maybe the church and the Gospels weren't the answer. Gandhi was a very intelligent man. But can I tell you this? The Gospel is the answer. The Gospel is the answer for all problems. The Gospel is the answer for every hurt, for every hang-up, for every habit, for every thing that keeps you from having peace. But can I tell you, often a stumbling block are the people who call themselves Christians. I want to invite you today, and I know you probably feel, well, Pastor, that kind of beat me up. <laughs> That's not my goal. My goal is not even to convict you. My goal is to tell you God's word and let him do the rest. So I want to invite you to stand today. As we read James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13 together. If you're able to stand, please do. If you cannot, I understand. The word of the Lord reads this way. It says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable to all of it. For he who has said, do not commit murder, also said, do not commit adultery. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. 
I want you to pay attention real quickly to this verse real intently. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Father, today as we study your word, God, would you, would you just remove our prejudices? God, would you remove our preconceived notions? And would you allow us to take in your word? God, to, to not only hear it, though, God, but to do it. God, to be active in our faith. And not be satisfied with sin. Father, we love you. And we accept the challenge today that your word lays before us. To love all. To show mercy to all. To be like you. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. You can be seated. See, James writes this text today with a genuine focus on what was happening in the church that day. Yeah, he wrote this with a genuine focus of how the Jewish people were treating other believers. How they were showing favoritism towards another, towards one believer who had money and one towards uh, showing angry... I can't even talk, folks. I'm so wrapped up. Showing prejudice against those who were poor. Can I say that I'm not sure today that that's the battle in the church? Do I think it's a battle? Yes. Do I see it as the main battle in the church when it comes to prejudices? I would say that's probably the least prejudice thing we deal with today. There's all types of prejudice. There's, there's prejudice against the poor. There's prejudice against certain races. There's prejudice against certain ethnic groups. There's prejudices against certain occupations. Our world has divided itself in so many ways that you can't even determine who you are anymore. Now, I get it, and I know the people today are probably going to be mad. I'm going to step on some toes. That's, guess what? You can curl them up for a reason. The reality is, is, is we have so messed up these ideas of let's divide ourselves into all these groups, political parties, what team we root for. Goodness gracious, there are certain states now that you can't even mark your male or female on a driver's license. There's 46 options. Literally, the state of California has 46 possible options. Can I tell you everything that divides us is man-made and not God-made? What separates people is not God. We're going to get into that in a second. I just had to get on my little high horse for a second. I'll get off. <laughs> oh, I'll get back on it in a minute. Just wait. The thing is, is that we've got to not show favoritism towards anybody. And I, can I tell you that's a hard thing sometimes as a pastor? Because if somebody sees me talk to somebody for more than 10 minutes while they wait in line and they get 30 seconds, somebody goes, you don't like me. Look, I love all of you. I do. Red, yellow, black, and white, you're all precious in my sight. Two-month-old, 
the hundred, no, we don't have any hundred-year-olds in the building, do we? I don't think we do. Ninety-one is closest I got over here, who I believe is actually holding the youngest attender as well. What a beautiful picture. I, I don't care what team you pull for. I don't care what political party you vote for. Now, somebody's going to say, well, you should. Look, Jesus is in charge. I'm going to have to submit to whoever sits in the Oval Office, according to Scripture. And I pray for them. I don't care who it is. I'm not going to chase a political tangent, so don't ask me to. But the reality is this, is we've divided each other. And we need to understand that God's call is to unite people. Number one today, social status doesn't exist in God's kingdom. Social status does not involve God's kingdom. God's kingdom says, you're all sinners, you all need a savior. It says, I don't care if your bank account has negative in front of it, or if it's got six zeros after it. You got six zeros after it, I like to remind you, the tithe goes in the back. Church only cares about my money. No, come on, let's be honest. But there is no such thing as social status in God's kingdom. See, James is addressing this with, with the church, and this is why we got to remember, look, if you're lost here, I love you, and I'm going to tell you about Jesus before it's over with, okay? But this message is for the church. For those who claim the name of Christ, he, James writes, brethren, I love how he does this. Brethren, show no partiality. Can I just tell you what that really says in the Greek? It says, stop showing partiality. It's not that, oh, well, this might come up. James looks at the church and he says, stop doing it. Can I just say that we probably need to say that around every church in America? I, I, again, I don't want to hammer you. Please look, hear me. I love you. But I need to tell you, we need to learn this right now. Stop showing partiality. This is a God's message for his people. Stop doing this. In fact, Ephesians chapter 4, as in your notes, if you want to look at it later, Ephesians 4, verses 4 through 6. This is what Paul writes. I'm just going to paraphrase it. He says, we're one body, one spirit, with one hope and one Lord and one faith and one baptism, one God and one Father. One, 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 one. Yet we want to go, I'm part of this group, I'm part of that group, I'm part of this group, I'm part of that group. God says, we're one. And can I tell you the distinctions? Yes, they're man-made, but can I tell you who put them there? The enemy himself. Then he says, oh, if I can divide them, <laughs> if I can divide them, I can win. What's the old phrase, divide and conquer? Yeah. See, one thing that's for certain is in the kingdom of God, we all stand on the same level ground at the foot of the cross. And God looks at us and he doesn't see skin. He doesn't see bank. He sees heart. See, the thing, I want us to see the petty little differences that separate us. What are some of the petty little differences that separate us? Rich and poor. Black and white. Democrat, Republican. Hawkeye, Cyclone. <laughs> Lord help us. But you 
think about all those petty things that separate us. I have sat in a church service before where in the great state of Mississippi, there are two, well, there's more than two teams, but there's really only two that matter. Mississippi State and Ole Miss. Can I tell you, my Bulldogs got mud stomped last night, 41 to nothing. Just mud stomped. That may not be a Midwest statement, but you'll pick it up. And if you, they, they play this game at the end of the year, every year, called the Egg Bowl. And it is a vicious, vicious rivalry. Punches thrown. I'm talking about not in the field, but in families' living rooms. I mean, it's just, it's ugly. And one year, our beloved Bulldogs won, which doesn't happen all the time. In fact, it happens not so often. And the pastor I was serving under at that time, I was a youth pastor, and he was sharing uh, his message, he was up sharing the gospel message, and he made references to the game five times in the first, like, three minutes. And the entire right side stands up and walks out the door. See, the enemy wants to use division. And God says, you're all just a bunch of beggars looking for crumbs at my table. What makes you think you are better than someone else? What makes you feel like you deserve to be with me more than somebody else? See, what we've, we've really failed to do here is we, we fail to recognize who we are when we discriminate. We fail to recognize that we are just as dirty as somebody else. See, the Jewish church struggled with this because they treated Gentiles a certain way. See, we're God's chosen people. Gentiles are, well, they're just the ragamuffins that tag along. You know, that smaller sibling that kind of chases after the other ones. That's who the Gentiles are. Oh, and if you're a Samaritan, you're not even the, you're not even the youngest child. You're the dog. That's the way they looked at these people. They said, no, 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 you're not equal as we are. We are God's chosen people. You are lesser people. Can I just tell you that Jesus died for every single one of them? Now, I'm jumping points already, but you need to know this, is that Jesus died for every single one of them. He didn't get on the cross and say, well, you know what? This is for the Jews. He says, for God so loves the world. Not God so loved this group or, or that group or, or this one way over there. It's God so loved the world. And Paul writes this. He says, here there's not Greek, there's not Jew, there's not circumcised or uncircumcised, there's not a barbarian, there's no Scythians, no slave and no free. But Christ is all and he's in all. And the writer of Hebrews writes this. this is one of my favorite things. He says that Christ died once for all. Aren't you glad he died once for all? See, this, this is a struggle. Can we, can we just be honest? I mean, I grew up in First Baptist Church. That was the church I grew up in. And, not, and let me tell you, if you told somebody you went to First Baptist Church, you know what they thought about you? Oh, you're rich. 
Look, my mom was a single school teacher who worked two jobs. We ain't rich. But that's a perception. I can recall going to a church previously and going to a gas station before I actually became the pastor at the church. And, and I was in there saying, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be going to First Baptist for church. Can you tell me something? That's not the actual name of the church, but I don't want to post it out for everybody to hear. They said, oh, that's the rich church. And I tell you, there's no such thing as a rich church or a poor church. It's just God's church. And if you want to go that, I guess it's rich, because we're rich in blessings and rich in mercy and rich in grace. See, social status doesn't exist in God's kingdom. That's man-made, devil-used division. Second thing I want us to see is this. Is God's kingdom is upside down. God's kingdom is upside down. Verses 5 and 7 or 5 through 7, pardon me, says, Listen, my beloved brothers, has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man and not the rich ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court. Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the honorable name by which you are called? See, in that day, the wealthy would often take the poor to court just to take from the poor, to maintain their wealth. That's how they got wealthy. And he's looking at them and he said, look, these people are hurting you. Why are you honoring them? I need to remind you of what Jesus' most famous sermon, Sermon on the Mount, Right? The Beatitudes. Y'all know the Beatitudes? If you know the Beatitudes, you just kind of raise your hand, nod your head, let me know you're still awake. All right, thank you. I'm missing, I'm missing my, my talking partner today. <laughs> See, everything that Jesus mentions in the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, is blessed are the, the poor, blessed are the weak, blessed, blessed are the merciful, blessed are those who are persecuted. Look, those are the people the world looks at and goes, man, I don't know what they did wrong, but glad it's not me. And God looks at them and he says, oh, you who have suffered, I'm going to bless you. See, the world celebrates the loud. <laughs> the world celebrates the proud and the outlandish and the chaotic, but that's not God's way. God looks at the humble, the lowly, the meek, the mild. Now, can God still bless loud folks? I hope so. <laughs> but the reality of this is that God always had a special place in Scripture for the poor. He always has a special heart for the down and out. And I remind you that our own Savior didn't have a place to lay his head. He was homeless. See, we need to recognize these things. I wanted to give you, as we looked at the fact that God's kingdom's upside down, I wanted to give you just some examples for you to kind of lean back on. Genesis chapter 40, verse 40, chapter 40 and 41. Shared last week a little bit about Joseph being the guy, or a couple weeks ago about Joseph running from temptation. What happens to Joseph? 
gets thrown in prison. He gets thrown in prison for a crime he didn't commit, for something he did not do wrong, and then he sees this way out, right? He interprets these dreams, and they're like, oh, I'm going to remember you. I'm going to remember you. How many times have we told somebody, oh, I'm going to take care of you, or I'm going to do something for you, and we didn't do it? But this is what happens. Joseph has heard, oh, they're going to remember me, and I can just imagine he has this, this glimmer of hope, and he's so excited, and he's like, yes, two years. Two years he waits in prison. Two years. Then he gets to come to the king, and, and he gets to, to give the interpretation of the dream. And then he ends up coming to what position in the kingdom? It says second in power. Basically, he's a prince. He goes from prisoner to prince. God just does things different. God just does things different. Matthew 20, verse 16. I want you to flip there real quickly. Love hearing them pages turn. Matthew 20, verse 16, says this. So the last will be first, and the first will be last. You know, I've always kind of laughed at our culture because we've adopted this everybody gets a trophy mentality, which I think is really hurting our younger generation, by the way. <laughs> Can you imagine being the first one to win a race? And you're so proud, you're excited, you're like, yes, and the person who comes across last gets the first place trophy. And God looks at, at this race we're all running, and he says, as long as you run, as long as you give it all, you're going to be rewarded. But the one who serves, the one who puts themselves last, the one who's willing to do everything for everybody else, they get the prize. I always loved how Jesus' disciples always fought over who his favorite was. <laughs> They're always like, I'm the best. Can't you just see them? They're all nudging each other. He likes me more. No, no, no. He likes me more. And you see them fighting over it, and Jesus drops this bomb on them. He says, if you think you're the favorite, <laughs> you're probably last. The thing is, we've got to realize that we're all just lowly people with nothing good in us but Jesus. Well, let's move on to the third one. I know I don't have a clock today, but my phone is buzzing. Third thing is that love is the law in God's kingdom. Love is the law in God's kingdom. Look with me, verse 8 and 9. If you really fulfill the royal law, according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But 
If you show partiality, you are committing sin and convicted by law as transgressors. Why is God's kingdom upside down? Because it's not based on leverage, but based on love. It's not based on your power or your position, but it's based on the Savior. So we get this understanding here in verse 8. He says to him, he says, okay, I get it, because here's what James is doing. James is preparing a court battle against the church. Because he knows what somebody's going to say where it says, well, you know, yeah, we put the rich guy at the head of the table, but we just treated them like we wanted to be treated. You know, that's just the golden rule, right? Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. So we put them at the head of the table because they that's what we'd want them to do for us. And James says, well, if you're loving your neighbor as yourself, you did good, but... Don't you just love that word? It's like, hey, great job, but... Last night I made a chicken pot pie at home. Yeah. Be impressed. It was great. Um, no. And my kids were eating it. They were enjoying it. And one of them said, Daddy, this is good, but... It's missing the green beans. And then another one chimes in later. It was good, and, but it was missing the green beans and corn. Now, I have a feeling that's how the church felt when James did this. He goes, oh, if you're loving your neighbor as yourself, you're doing a great job. But. If you're doing this for gain, if you're hoping the wealthy guy will give a little bit more or he'll lift up your prestige, well, then you're guilty. We see this come out. He said, look, whole purpose of treating one another equally is that we love everybody equally. See, this is, this is a tongue-in-cheek thing for him. He's like, well, <laughs> guilty. I mean, Leviticus 19, in one of the very first understandings of God's law, we come across this idea that says, love your neighbor as yourself. Of course, now you know what happens when Jesus tells this. Well, who's my neighbor? Look, everybody do me a favor. Look to your left. Some of you will figure out what direction the left is in a minute. It'll be fine. I'm going to help you because you're going to look to the right. Look to the right. Okay. Now, I'm not going to ask you to look behind you. But the people around you, no matter if you're in church, no matter if you're in Hy-Vee, or Quickstar, or wherever you're at, the people around you, guess who they are? Your neighbor. Mr. Rogers, right? Nice to see you, my neighbor. They're all your neighbors. I don't care what color their skin is. I don't care what party sticker they're wearing. I don't care what amount of money they got. I don't care what team they cheer for. Guess what? They're your neighbors. And you are called to love them. Six times in the Gospels, Leviticus 19.18 is quoted. 
six times. The old saying is if something said once, it's important. Said twice, it's very important. Three times, you better listen. Guess what? Six times, you better turn your ears on. Jesus tells us to love our neighbors. And can I tell you what I love even more? It's not just love your neighbors, but it's love your enemies. Really, God? I got to love them. They treat me terribly. Jesus says, yeah, you did too. You treated me pretty terrible too. Reality is we're called to love one another. No matter who you are or where you're from or what you've done or who's done it to you, can I tell you, you're worthy of love. Oh, now see, that's the moment I really hope that y'all shout amen, hallelujah, and throw confetti in the air. Can I just say it one more time so you can turn your ears on, so you can hear the gospel understanding of this. No matter who you are, where you're from, what you've done, or what's been done to you, you are worthy of love. Praise God. We finna have the invitation early. See, why though? Why? Why is love such an important thing? 1 Peter 4.8 tells us why. 1 Peter 4.8 tells us why. It says because love covers a multitude of sin. Love covers a multitude of sin. When you love somebody, guess what you have to do? Oh, now see, I figured I'd get at least one answer. Gotta forgive them, huh? Uh-oh. Preacher, now you better stop talking about forgiveness. Well, that's what the gospel's all about. Forgiveness, mercy, grace, love. Love one another as I have loved you. That's the thing, folks. We forget how far we have fallen. We forget who we were. We forget that we were sinners. I'll just be honest with you. Still am. See, the reason it's the royal law is because Jesus is king. He decrees love one another. This is what James says. He says, look, if you don't love one another, you've already failed at all the other commandments. You've already failed. Because I want to remind you that Jesus says that if you've even had hatred in your heart towards another, you've done what? Murder. You've even had lust in your heart. You've committed adultery. The reality is that we have to understand that if we can't love one another within these four walls, guess who else you can't love? Lost folks. Woo. Can't love the Lord if we don't love other people. Because where does our love for other people come from? From the Lord, because trust me, I ain't good enough in my own self to love people. That person cuts me off in traffic, I don't want to love them. A person walks through the, the express line with more stuff than they're supposed to. I don't want to love them. But because God loves me, I have to love other people. Let's look at this last part together, the fourth one. Breaking God's law brings God's punishment. 
This is where I spent the most time suffering through this this week. Because I don't like talking about punishment. It's just not who I am by nature. I'm a fun, loving person. I do not like talking about punishment. But you can't hide from it in this word today. Verse 10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but you murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak. So act as those who are not to be judged under the law of liberty, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. See, James' point is here that whatever the sin is, whatever sin is in your life, it renders you guilty. Whatever it is, it could be a little white lie. It could be an extra zero on your taxes. It can be, y'all are going to love this, speeding. Just for you, my brother. No matter what it is, if it breaks one law, it breaks the whole thing. You're guilty. I'll give you an example. If there's a man that commits a murder, when he shows up to court, they're not trying to convict him of being a bad father, are they? They're not trying to convict him of being a faithful spouse. They are trying to convict him of the one thing he's guilty of. And that is murder. The reality for each and every one of us is if we're guilty of something, we're guilty. And the way this comes across in this scripture is it says if, we, if we're guilty of showing partiality, then we're guilty of all the law. And can I tell you, that's a weight that my shoulders can't bear. Being guilty of that is something I cannot carry. Mercy. Mercy is such a required thing in the life of a believer. I'm so thankful that God gives me mercy. Can I tell you, the cost of my sin is death. And Jesus set me free. One passage that, that just overwhelms me with this, and I encourage you to go back and look at this passage later. I, I, I want you to. I want you to spend time looking at this passage. Matthew 18, 21 through 35. The story of the unmerciful servant. And I'll give you the, the Wade standard translation real quickly. And so there's a, a man who was called in to pay his accounts. Called in by the king to pay his accounts, and it was a heavy account. I believe from the times I've looked at it before, there was roughly 55 million American dollars is what was owed. And he comes in and he, and he begs and he pleads for mercy and the bill collector looks and he says, you're free. 
your debt's done. Just don't worry about it. Now, for me, if, if I was to get a call from the bill collectors today, and they would say, your debts are forgiven, I'd cry. Like, full out cry. Like, sobbing. And this guy walks out and sees somebody that owes him a Big Mac. And he says, throw him in prison. Till he can pay it off. Throw him, his whole family in prison. Just get rid of them all until they can pay me back. Again, this is Wade's standard version. I recommend you go back and look at the passage. And King finds out that the one he gave mercy to doesn't give mercy back. Those of you that know the story, you may recall what he does. He brings him back in, and he just tells him, he says, you unmerciful person. How dare you treat that person that way? He whops him off. Makes him pay his debt back. I read that passage, and I, and I, and I stick myself here in James 2.13, where it says that when we don't show mercy, we don't get mercy. Can I tell you right now, as sure as I'm standing here and breathing, your pastor is a person who needs mercy. I'll say it for them. They're not, they didn't offer this, but I'll say it for them. Your elder body sure as the fact they're breathing they need mercy and I can almost well I can declare it for you if you're in this room and you're breathing you need mercy can I ask you though this question are you willing to freely give it to others Are you willing to freely give mercy as mercy has been given to you? When I read my Bible, I read that I have a Jesus who's rich in mercy. But I also know that my God can be a wrathful God. I don't want to stand in judgment one day and him look at me and say, you know what? You did a really good job of preaching. I want that. <laughs> and I want him to look at me and say, you did a really good job of being a dad, and I know I'm not very good at that sometimes. But I also don't want him to look at me one day and say, oh, but do you remember that time that you didn't show mercy to somebody who needed it? Because I can't stand that kind of judgment. You can't stand that kind of judgment. You may think you can today, but I can tell you when you stand before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and he says to you, you know what? You did all right, my servant. Because we all want to hear well done, don't we? He just says, you did all right. You could have done better here. You could have done better there. You could have given more grace. You could have given more love. I can't handle those words.
See, at God's table, all people are welcome. Not just the rich, not just the poor, not just the white, not just the black, not just the saint, but also the sinner. And can I tell you, if it wasn't for the invitation for a sinner to come sit at the table, I would never have made it. I would never have made it to get to sit at the Lord's table. Because I am a sinner. But Jesus is rich in mercy. I told you I'd get to the gospel, so here it is. Today, if you feel like you can't come to the table because you're too dirty, can I tell you that Jesus cleanses? I hear that all the time. Well, I can't come to the Lord because my life's not right. <laughs> if you're waiting on that, you'll never get to come. Can I remind you real quickly the story of the wedding feast in Scripture? The king sends out an invitation to all the, to all the proud and the, the wealthy and to all of his, his uh, kingly buddies and all the other princes and the principalities, and he sends them all invitations and not a single one shows up. So what does he do? He sends his servants. He says, you go get the homeless guy, the hungry guy. You go get the sick, the lame, those who will never make it on their own. You bring them here. And it's just, they just show up. And they fill up the wedding feast. And it's, it's this beautiful picture of how God looks. And he says, you're invited to my table. Church. That's the kind of church we need to be. A church that says to people, you're invited to the table. A church that says, come. Come eat with us. Come be with us. Because we want to be with Jesus. Today, maybe you don't feel like you can come. There's no better time than now. There's no better time than now to come. So we're going to take the Lord's Supper in just a few minutes. What a great meal to share at the table. All are welcome. Father God, I just want to say thank you. God, thank you that at 15 years old, God, a kid that thought I was too messed up to, to be saved, Lord, you looked at me and you said, I love you. God, I thank you for how hard this word has been this week. Father, I thank you most of all that you're rich in mercy. God, that you have prepared a table for each of us. Lord, today I ask that we will be reminded that each and every one of us are on the same playing field. 
God, I pray today that you would remind us that we're all just sinners in need of Jesus. Lord, we love you. And we thank you for pouring out your love on us. It's in the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.